Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And boy, oh boy, are you folks in for a treat today. This episode's uh, by special request. <laughs> it really is. We're about to talk about the common cold, baby. With the Wuhan clan. Oh, no. <laughs> no, wrong, wrong. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's the sound Uh, of the coronavirus (laughs) no no all right wait 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 i no 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 i listen hey you know if anybody if y'all are still listening and you you guys are okay with us taking you know a uh a plague in vain (laughs) uh welcome and you guys are our people so thank you so much for the download (laughs) that's right santosh you are spot on because it's time for us to wage a cold war in another episode of around the world in 80 plagues Oh, makes my ears bleed every time. Look at that waveform. (laughs) I should count how many plagues we're up to. I feel like we're getting closer. We might indeed be getting there. Well, I have heard back from a number of our listeners that they're just a tad concerned about this Wuhan virus they've heard so much about on the news. Uh, This is a good time to do a couple of things. 
It's very early in the investigation of this particular outbreak, which is rapidly turning into a worldwide issue. It is certainly not a pandemic, not there yet. But I think it's it's a fairly good time to tell everybody who's listening to take a little bit of a breather, to not freak out that, you know, we're, we're all going to die from this thing, but that it's still a good idea during cold and flu season to A, vaccinate, and B, wash your hands really well, and practice good hygiene precautions when you're sick and when you're around sick people. And also when you're not around sick people, you should just practice good hygiene. <laughs> yeah. Don't also wipe your nose and shake someone's hand when you are well. That is correct. Yes. Like I, this is a thing that we have to keep coming <laughs> back to. What should we do when we're sick? Practice good hygiene. Also, a thing you should do when you're well. Also, when you're well. <laughs> That's a that's actually a great line from one of my favorite comedians, which is the way you kill a zombie is to cut its head off or blow its heart out, which is also how you kill anything. <laughs> so before we get into the finer points of the Wuhan coronavirus, let's talk a little bit about the history yeah of the coronavirus in general. And Santosh, you you opened my eyes to just a world of wonder on some of these things. So I'm very excited. So we'll start a little dry and then we'll dive right in. <laughs> hey, just like the common cold. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll get that post-nasal. Yeah, that little, ah, uh-huh, uh-huh, that, that, that sensation so going. <laughs> the virus was yeah. first described in 1931, but we didn't, but at that point, it was mostly an animal virus. It was coming from turkeys, of all things. Yeah, well, um, this is coronaviruses are quite ancient, and this is one of these that, like influenza, in order to get to us as a species, to the human species, it has hopped around other species first. And one and of the this oldest, is true of all the coronaviruses. One of the oldest coronaviruses probably came from bats, and we'll come back to that later. But they mm-hmm. weren't isolated from humans specifically till 1965, even though we knew that something like it was causing a cold in World War II. Now, I've given you three different time periods. So let's back up first to World War II, because it's important yeah. to touch on these big historical periods, Egypt, Victorian, World War II, you know, all the highlights. Your favorites. Yeah, yeah, so. Play Freebird! So, <laughs> Santosh, what if right after World War II, you're sitting there in your business suit, drinking your cup of coffee, and you see there's an ad in the paper that is mm-hmm. offering you a chance to get a little bit of a holiday. Um, let's see if I can find it. It's the germ of an idea, which, oh, the puns. Old-timey scientists, you have my heart. But the germ of an idea helped the Medical Research Council to fight the common cold and influenza. All expense, 10-day holiday, free, receive 35 pence a day, comfortable accommodation, good food, sunshine, summer and winter, Mm -hmm. central heating. If you are between 18 and 50 and in good health, write to so on so forth. Yeah, I mean this this sounds pretty good. This you know, it it sounds like 
I might be put in isolation for a while. And, you know, they're, they're, they're studying some colds and flu, so they might take some of my blood or swab my nose or something like that. Uh, this, this sounds like a good time to just kind of like chill out and get away and try to recover from the blitz in England. Yeah, absolutely. Help your country with an all-expense-paid 10-day holiday to fight common cold and influenza <laughs> research. Well, no, th- this was in England, though. Put on your accent. I oh, no. say. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> right, watch up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took to, no. <laughs> Look, Two got, words and it just <laughs> fell apart. I've got one accent from the 50s and it's the transatlantic. And that's what you got to yeah. deal with. Well, and it's funny because I guess when, you know, I when England was settling the West, I guess everyone sounded like the transatlantic accent and it's only because some english king had an absurd accent that everyone adopted the accent that's currently thought of as like the pan english accent it's the same reason, is that true it's the same reason everybody in barcelona sounds like they're deaf because at one point the king was oh and they didn't want to insult him that's why there's a section of spain that sounds like it talks with a lisp Oh, I didn't even know that. That's so cool. Okay, back to cold viruses, though. So, 1946, (laughs) the Common Cold Unit opened its doors to volunteers for a 10-day, all-expense-paid day, all-expense-paid stay in the Salisbury countryside. It's Salisbury Steak Hospital! (laughs) Come on, children! Yeah. All right. Now, the purpose of these trials was to examine the cause and transmission of colds and it was led by Dr. David Terrell, who ended up publishing the results of all this research carried out in the post-war period in the 60s. And it's really thanks to Dr. Terrell that we have any understanding about the common cold. Like everything you know about the common part of the cold is mostly mm-hmm. due to Terrell and a few other researchers. It's it's a small group of people who got together and said, you know what? Okay, we we understand that there are viruses by this time. So um, we're we're talking about you know John Franklin Enders, who was alive from eighteen ninety seven to nineteen eighty five, um, and he won the Nobel Prize in Physiology for his work in developing viral culture. So like in the thirties. Even prior to the 30s, we had Cook's postulates and we had understanding of bacteria and protozoa and fungi. But this was really during the time we had learned that, hey, there's something even smaller that you can transmit from person to person that can cause disease. And these things were called viruses. So this group of people, Tyrell et al., decided, you know what? These things are absolutely everywhere. Every single human being gets the cold. So let's figure out now, what this is all about. volunteers would be admitted in groups of 30. They'd stay for 9 to 14 days living in fully equipped flats at the hospital. They were isolated in small groups and quarantined, and they were infected intentionally with cold viruses. And we'll talk about the ethics of that a little bit later. And this enables researchers to look at both Mm -hmm. the causes of infection and possible prevention. Now, when they say paid holiday, they weren't kidding. There were sports facilities on site. Volunteers were allowed out for walks, but they had to stay away from others or local residents. And 
they would arrive. There was it was like a whole gated bungalow community. Now some of the other things they had to do, uh, it yeah. was a double blind experiment. So only one third of patients on any given trial were given the cold virus. Others got a placebo, and then they got routine medical examinations, and they also <laughs> collected used tissues from volunteers. Yep. Here's some of the information sheets. This is a direct read. Handkerchiefs. Put away your own. You know what? I'm sorry. I should do this in my transatlantic because I don't because I don't have a British. Yeah, While yeah, at yeah. The cold please, institute, yeah. Put away your own yeah. handkerchiefs for the next nine days and use only ours. Use only one tissue at a time. Each morning from the first Wednesday, the doctor has to see every paper handkerchief you have used in the previous 24 hours. Be ready. Open out a clean one on your knee and spread out each one you've used to be seen and counted. This is very important. And Dr. Terrell, who likes these handkerchiefs, regards the number used and the appearance of them as the most important thing on the records which are kept for him. That's really Pause. detail Sorry. oriented. I want to see your snot. That's science, folks. Yep. Terrell was so invested in learning about the common cold that <laughs> he wanted to count the individual boogies on your snot rags. Common cold two, electric boogaloo. <laughs> I I I absolutely well this went into examining what the clinical course of a common cold was, right? So very early on, we weren't looking for cures. We weren't looking necessarily for real specific stuff. We wanted to chart very simply what the course was from the start of a cold to the end of it. And it really did matter because when you're counting the number of hankies that you use to blow your nose per day or whatever, you have an objective measure of you're making about this much snot that you want to blow your nose. And you can actually see the number of hankies kind of increase as your cold symptoms peak and then go down and down until the secretions dry up and you kind of get back to yourself. So I, I really love some of the stories I mean, the, and data. The way this trial was set up obviously got a lot of media attention. And they actually, you know, mm -hmm. it was a holiday not to be sneezed at with, with cold comfort. And yeah. <laughs> as a result, they actually were oversubscribed. Like they had volunteers coming up to do this multiple times. And some went on honeymoons, others used, used it as a research sabbatical. They're like, eh, you know, this is a great vacation and maybe I'll get a cold. Maybe I won't. To the point that they had to remind people, you know, chatting up other volunteers can only be by telephone or at very long range. And there were even a, a couple of romances. Um, <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> that that blooms. Like one, one volunteer who was only described as guitar strumming on his ninth visit to the unit wooed a neighboring oboist by playing duets at 30 feet. <laughs> I really, really love it. So you have, you have people on site signing people up as they came to the door. So no, the, the, uh, let me put it this way. Participation was solicited in the newspaper and that kind of a thing, but there was no kind of 
captive audience. They didn't take military members or prisoners or anything that were forced to come in. Everybody came to the door voluntarily to pick up their 35 pence a day. Um, And that kind of helped ease some of the ethical conundrums that were going on here. But um, I I really want to say, Josh, this was a super exciting time. All right. So you had a description of how you could inoculate pure viruses into the nose because we had methods by which at this point you could actually strain bacteria out of snot. Like you could put it through like a, it was like a really tiny sieve with super tiny holes that would let mucus and everything come through, but it would be small enough to restrict the passage of bacteria. So you basically sieved out just the viruses on the other side. So you could isolate viruses, you could deliver them by either swabbing a person's nose or misting it into the nose. But the coolest thing happened while the common cold unit was going on. Um, Thomas Huckle Weller, Weller, Frederick Chapman Robbins, And John Franklin Enders were alive during this time. And in 1954, they got the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the ability to grow polioviruses. And that's really important because there's another virus in the family of enteroviruses, which includes polio. But enteroviruses are also a cause Mm -hmm. of common cold. One that you might have heard of, Josh, is Coxsackie. You got the Coxsackie virus. So... Uh, John Enders, along with Weller and Robbins, found out how they could grow these viruses in various types of tissue culture, which means that you could actually isolate the viruses and study the molecular properties. This had never really been done before. So now you could actually, you could isolate mucus, you could put it into people's noses, they would inhale it, you could actually um, see what the what the infection looked like. And then you could harvest that infection from the noses, put it on tissue culture, and examine the viral effects and the inflammatory effects therein. Um, it was so cool what was going on during this time. And, and tissue culture was, you know, human tissue, not uh, like the tissues that Dr. Terrell was collecting. No, no. <laughs> yeah, tissue. Very briefly, let's touch on the ethical considerations. Again, this was founded in 1946, as you would recall, that's post-World War II. So this is set up at a time when the Nuremberg trials and the Helsinki Declaration were very much in the mind of the public and of the researchers. So they there were no formal review bodies to mm. talk about what is permitted in terms of human experimentation, but a lot of ideas about what shouldn't be. So when it was originally suggested that prisoners with good conduct or servicemen might be recruited, ultimately it was decided that just by virtue of the fact that you were a prisoner or in the military, yes. you could not be considered to be a freely a freely chosen volunteer. But servicemen could come when they were on leave as civilians. Uh, So on the whole, this was really done by exclusively civilians, by the public. And this went on for quite a while. The unit only closed in the 1990s. That is within our lifetime, at least for what I'm going to guess is a vast majority of our listening audience. You were probably alive at some point when this was open. 
And all the volunteers made their first approach to the unit in response to these media reports or personal recommendations. So there could be no undue pressure. They were always informed of what was going on. And many would-be volunteers never followed up from the initial contacts and would just drop out from the trials. So this was the original Club Med. It was, it was just a... Uh... The entrance and exit was kind of a free-for-all, but it needed to be that way. You know, you're free to come in at any time. You're free to drop out at any time. And thank you so much for your service if you decide to stay the whole time. And as you said, Josh, they had plenty, plenty, plenty of data. They were overbooked by the time um, the research got into full swing. So this unit was open until the 1990s, which means there's a good chance that you might know somebody in your life who actually went and visited it at a certain point. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the hard science and then feel free to jump in and, and correct me, Santosh. But the original viruses uh, published in Terrell's 1965 paper found from the nasal passages a virus which we'll call B814. And that was cultured out of human trachea from the respiratory tract of an adult who had been infected. Now, they also went back and reinfected humans with this virus once they found it. Uh, this was demonstrated by taking the medium from cultures intranasally in human volunteers. So people would get a cold. They'd stick a little Q-tip up their nose, swipe around, and then see what grew out on a lab plate. In addition to Terrell, two researchers named Hamra and Prochnow were also able to grow a virus with unusual properties in tissue cultures from samples obtained from medical students with colds, and they called that virus 229E. Both B814 and 229E were noted to be ether-sensitive, meaning they had a lipid-containing coat. Within the same time frame that Hamray and Prochnow discovered 229E and Terrell isolated B814, Almeida and Terrell looked at these viruses with an electron microscope, a super high-powered microscope, and they examined it on organ cultures, and they found particles in these cultures that resembled a virus also seen in chickens with infectious bronchitis. Now, the particles were larger than you'd expect, about medium-sized at 80 to 150 nanometers. How big is a nanometer? Well, a strand of human DNA is about two and a half nanometers. The main thing about these is they were covered with widely spaced, club-shaped surface projections in a little halo or a crown all around it, maybe a crown of swords for those of you who are Game of Thrones fans. And because of that, they called these new viruses around which they saw a little bit of a crown, a coronavirus. It wasn't no, because of the beers no. then? You can have any kind of virus you want, as long as it's a corona. <laughs> it's, it's kind of beautiful how they named these when we had electron microscopy. Rotavirus, which is one of our famous diarrhea viruses actually looks like a little wheel rotating. And some of the virologists that discovered this and, and kind of established the first data on it, 1930s, 1940s, they were actually poets to go along with it. 
So uh, there's actually some beautiful metaphorical poetry that come along. Um, one of my favorite, actually, because, you know, you, you talked about the corona, is a Khaleesi virus or a Khaleesi virus. Are you kidding uh, me? There's which, actually a Khaleesi virus? Like George R. R. Martin was well, even in the public attention then? <laughs> no, it's not Khaleesi like K-H. Khaleesi is the Latin for chalice. So there are viruses that look like a little cup or a chalice. So they were named Khaleesi viruses. Or if you're being very, very Latin about it, Khaleesi. Mother virus. of dragon viruses. God. <laughs> yes, if you must. <laughs> I must. And I know you must. That's how these viruses first got their name. And Terrell found that people could not only be very easily infected, but they could be reinfected over and over and over again. And the thing that unfortunately really stuck out in the public's mind about these experiments is that there was no cure. Uh, you just kind of had to wait it out. So research emphasis began to shift away from the domestic common cold and cough towards more life-threatening and serious illnesses. And you know, we just kind of have to put up with the common cold. It was, you know, once we got tissue culture in the 1950s and we could chase down things like the measles virus, which causes devastating encephalitis and horrible pneumonia, also being one of the most contagious viruses on the planet. Um, and we could actually culture that and turn it into a vaccine when we were able to do work the way that Jonas Salk did and take care of devastating diseases like polio. Unfortunately, things like coronavirus, rhinoviruses, which cause the common cold, the, the research kind of fell by the wayside of how to treat them because everyone said, oh, you know, we have much more important work to do over here to treat these things, which can kill or maim and not just be an inconvenience for a few days. Until about 2002, only two human coronaviruses were known, 229E and B814, which later became named OC43, because it was grown from organ culture. It was the original culture, the, the, the OC. OC. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to make an Irvine reference. I thought about it. <laughs> but in 2002, something happened. In fact, there was a respiratory syndrome caused by a coronavirus that was fairly acute, pretty severe. So we called it Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or <laughs> SARS. Oh, I love how inventive we are. And that emerged in the Guangdong province of China in a hotel in November 2002. Ultimately, it spread to 32 different countries, leading to a total of 8,096 documented cases and 774 deaths worldwide by the time it was brought under control a year later in June 2003. Not even a full year. I want to kind of pull attention to how amazing this public health response is, by the way. Um, these are viral infections that don't just burn out. Coronaviruses are very, very contagious. That's why when you get a cold circulating through, for instance, an office environment, 
it's just, you know, everyone catches it. And why we put out these warnings year after year of like, if you're sick, just please employers give time off and employees, please take time off it, because it's, it's really important to stem the, the course of these illnesses. The fact that this thing got to, what was it? 83 countries, Josh? No, sorry. 32 countries. And we were still able to limit it to less than 10,000 cases until we got it to kind of smolder out without the use of antivirals, because we don't have any good antivirals against this. I'm absolutely blown away by how good our global health response is. Now, SARS was thought to be transferred or jumped to humans from an avian source, and it ended up leading to the discovery of two new human coronaviruses that previously weren't known to exist. And that was pretty much it for coronavirus research until 2012, when another one showed up that took place or came out of the Middle East, and that became Middle East Respiratory Virus, or MERS. And ultimately, it was identified in 699 individuals between September 2012 and 2014 with 209 fatalities. So much more severe in terms of its lethality, but compared to 8,000 cases in 32 countries, Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus was much less infectious. So coronaviruses have this range where they can be super infectious, but not really a problem, not terribly deadly, or they can be not as easily transmissible, but they can affect you much more severely. We are always on edge to find that really awful combination of a coronavirus, which will be highly infectious and also highly virulent. That's the kiss of death that we we really worry about. And now that we understand that coronaviruses can move not easily, but quite commonly from species to species, this is becoming more and more of a worry from a public health standpoint. We're going to talk about it a little bit coming up here, Josh, how we think that this novel coronavirus or NCOV has started to circulate around Wuhan in China. Um, but this, the fact that it can jump species to species like this makes it quite a big problem. Measles, for instance, you know, you can eradicate it from the North American continent, or we could until people stop taking vaccines, but you can eradicate it because the only reservoir is humans. When you start to include other species, it becomes a much more complex so for issue. The one last thing I want to touch on before we talk about specifically the Wuhan coronavirus is we're going to have to go into a little bit of biochemistry and molecular biology. Now, wake yes. up. Wake up. <laughs> I'm going to keep it nice and simple. <laughs> Despite my my uh, wishes to the contrary. Coronaviruses on a molecular level are large. I told you about 50 to uh, 80 nanometers, 50 to 180 nanometers. They are lipid enveloped. That's why they dissolved in ether. So there is a little fat coating around them. 
and they mm -hmm. are single-stranded RNA viruses, which means they get into the cell, they hijack the cell's little factories for building proteins, and they give them instructions, instead of building normal cell proteins, to build more viruses. And these viruses build up and build up in the cytoplasm, kind of the, the swimming pool bath that the whole cell sits in, until the cell bursts open, releasing a whole bunch of new RNA pieces. So it's not really making a protein, it's transcribing proteins that build more and more of these RNA viruses. The way they're classified from what we understand now into three different groups. And those groups are based on the antigenic relationships of three components, the spike or the little, you know, the spiky part of the crown, the mm -hmm. membrane, so that lipid sort of membrane around the virus itself, and the nucleocapsid protein that's made by the virus, uh, that's made by the RNA and responsible for creating more viruses. Um, so you have a spike, a membrane, and a nucleocapsid, and based on how those three fall out in patterns, you're classified into one of three coronavirus groups. Group one was the first one we discovered. That was that 229E. Group two has SARS and OC43. And group three coronaviruses largely are just found in birds. <laughs> Until it makes its way. Well, <laughs> right now, right yeah. now we're, we really haven't seen any group three in humans. Uh, so it's all group or one and two. I, we should say, yeah, we should say much outside of birds at all. Right. So, um, yeah, they haven't made now, it to a mammal. genetic recombination does occur between members of the same and different groups. So group two can meet with group one. Group one can go on Tinder dates with group three. And as a result, <laughs> these viruses are constantly interacting with each other as well as with their hosts and that increases the genetic diversity, leading to even more different formations of spike, membrane, and nucleocapsid proteins. So as an example, the SARS virus gets into the human cell by sneaking in using the angiotensin converting enzyme as its cellular receptor. I know you don't care what that is, so I'm not going to go into it, but it's one that we <laughs> have in our bodies, whereas other coronaviruses use different proteins and enzymes that our body makes to kind of break in and hijack our cells machinery. Yeah, and that's kind of the scariest part is that the virus itself is not making anything novel in order to jailbreak the cells. The mechanism that it's using is something that's native and actually in the in the instance of ACE and angiotensin converting enzyme, that is a necessary cell to cell signaling process. And so you can't just shut that off in a human being and say, oh, you know, in order to starve out the virus, we're going to, you know, just block ACE signaling altogether. Um, we, we do have ACE inhibitors that we use for different things, but you can't just shut it off completely or, you know, things like kidneys and blood vessels will stop working. So with all of that in mind, and I promise that is the bare minimum of biochemistry and, bio and molecular biology that you need to know, we come to what I think is my favorite snarky New England Journal, Medic <laughs> New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine editorial. 
You got so happy when I showed this to you. <laughs> I did. I didn't even know this. All right. This is... <laughs> This title, if you are in the scientific community, is almost pure shade. Yeah, it is. Well, okay. but it's funny because it's kind of shading the viruses. It is. And yeah. here we go. Another decade, another coronavirus <laughs> by, by Stanley Perlman, MD, PhD. Yeah. <laughs> and Stan Perlman, by the way, is just a giant in infectious diseases and virology um, he's a bro of ours from University of Iowa. Shout out Hawkeyes. And he, he really has kind of seen it all when it has come through either pandemics or epidemics like this. So for him to write an editorial with this kind of a title, he's, uh, he's, he's really showing some snark. It's, it's great. Snarky scientists are the best scientists. On the 31st of December 2019, a new strain of virus was reported in Wuhan, China. By the 24th of January 2020, that's, you know, today when we're, when we're recording this episode. Yeah, yeah, that's, the, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, it's, it's just a day um, behind 25 us, deaths yeah. have been reported and 547 confirmed cases. It's been identified as a new novel strain of beta or group two um, with a 70% genetic similarity to SARS. So the new strain was named originally 2019 NCOV for new 2019 coronavirus. And it's now the Wuhan <laughs> virus, or the Wuhan strain. It was suspected to have transferred from bats, possibly to snakes. Uh, and all of that, the corona outbreak currently in Hubei, China, and the SARS outbreak of 2003 have a few things in common. As we said, they're both from the coronavirus family, the beta group, and both of them started in Chinese wet markets. Wet markets put people and live animals and dead animals, dogs, chickens, pigs, uh, snakes, civets, and more in constant close contact. It's it's a fact of life that you know people living in these crowded places in China will go to these wet markets to buy their produce, and maybe they'll buy some chickens to raise, and maybe they'll buy a chicken for dinner, and it'll be slaughtered in front of them, and then they'll pick up some fish along the way. So the sheer amount of animals and humans and living and dead and fresh and rotting and no sense of hygiene control whatsoever makes it very easy from a yeah. virus to jump from an animal to a human. There's lots of skinning of dead animals in front of shopper in front of shoppers. And as a result, everything sort of gets aerosolized. So these are just disease breeding grounds, but they're also a fact of life. And before we go on to say anything that's going to be too terribly scary, it's important for you to know that the majority of these 25 deaths, not all of them, but the vast majority have been in cases of people who are elderly and, and or have a chronic disease like heart failure or asthma or COPD that would increase their susceptibility to infectious diseases to begin with. So it's not just killing people out of the blue. These are people who are already prone to become sick from any number of infections. Right. So we do want to prevent 
a lot of spread of this particular infectious particle because it looks like it is very, very contagious. And we have confirmed, Josh, not just transmission from the animals to humans, but we now know firmly that we have human-to-human transmission. So we want to really prevent transmission because you know, we, we want to keep that denominator low, the just the number of people who are infected. We do understand that this so far is not turning out like a MERS situation where, you know, a, a large proportion of people who acquire this can die, even if they don't have any predisposing uh, kind of uh, conditions to, to put them at risk. But we still know that if it gets out of control, we're really not going to be able to get a rein in on it. So that's the reason why the public response outside of China and inside of China has been aggressive at this point. Now, here's a key difference, and this is the one that's really what is causing concern in the scientific community. The main difference between SARS and this new coronavirus, 2019 uh, Wuhan, is that the Wuhan 2019 virus seems to grow better in human airway epithelial cells or upper respiratory, whereas the SARS and the MERS tended to grow better in intrapulmonary cells. And what that means is that transmission in SARS, uh, because it had to be in kind of the lower lungs, transmission would occur primarily from patients with recognized illness and not from patients with, you know, mild, nonspecific signs. You know, it would spread, but it already had to be a certain degree of severity to be contagious. Because this grows much more easily in the upper airways, it's much, much more infectious And people can be carrying it around and infected with it and not even know while they're actively spreading it. And I think that is really the biggest problem. When you have a cold virus that you're passing around, you're not sure if you're incubating it or not. By and large, these common colds that are circulating during cold and flu season, all right, you get a little bit sick. Some people might have a little bit more severe illness than others. You have to protect people who are immune compromised or who have prior lung disease. But in this particular case, if you know that this virus can descend and cause really, really awful pneumonia, affect people who are maybe not severely already predisposed to get these killer viruses mildly they have they have some sort of predisposition emphysema maybe they're a smoker um and and they they're at risk for getting severe disease now we're in trouble because you have to try to contain people who are exposed and you from a very human standpoint you have to convince them that you know please don't go out there just wait for a little bit until we get a hang on this, and we understand and we know that you're putting your life on hold, but please wait while we check this out. 
And really, that's one of the most difficult things to convince people when they're feeling well is still just please wait until we have a better understanding of what's going on. Now, transmission of coronaviruses occurs, it's via droplets. So when you sneeze, when you cough, any kind of moisture or fluid that comes out of your body, whether or not you can easily detect it, to a lesser degree, aerosols um, or fomites can also mm -hmm. transmit it. So I love that word, fomite. What is a fomite, Santosh? No. <laughs> fomite is when you have infectious particles outside of a host reservoir. So a uh, fomite can be that uh, snot infested tissue that you leave sitting there or you wipe your nose and you decide to touch a doorknob um, now there are fomites uh, it's it's they're little little infectious particles sitting probably in a nice you know insulating layer of mucus on a surface that is not a living so host. public health measures to take to limit aerosols and fomites aside from the hygiene that we keep recommending include some degree of quarantine mm -hmm. in the community. If this is spread by droplets, you don't want people who are expelling droplets from their body interacting with people who have not yet been infected. That's why maybe the biggest cause of how people, how concerned people are about this, Disneyland Shanghai closed. I know nothing that can close a Disney park. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, we, here in the United States, we had a measles outbreak <laughs> involving <laughs> involving Disneyland in Anaheim, and that park managed so to stay Shanghai open. So Shanghai Disney is closed, and <laughs> a lot of yes. Lunar New Year celebrations have been canceled or postponed. Now, this is a huge time. Like, basically, imagine this kind of thing happens in the U.S. on you know, New Year's, and you're told you can't go to any parties for New Year's, or you can't go watch fireworks for July 4th, or you can't visit with any friends on Christmas. Any Think of a major holiday where you're going to travel and see people, and now imagine that the entire country has been told it can't do that. Now, China being a somewhat more authoritarian country has also shut down transport between some of these markets uh, using closing railways, uh, buses, planes. So they have a much higher degree of control over their their populace in their ability to quarantine however they also have a much tightly condensed populace making it easy for this infection to achieve super spread okay yeah that's that's i think i i, I don't think i could have put it much better than that absolutely right now one thing that they do have china being china the way it is right now it's up and coming, you know, it has a solid, you know, GDP, and it's got a very good infrastructure. Um, healthcare infrastructure is actually not too, too bad over there. We worry about these outbreaks when they occur in places where infrastructure is disrupted and very poor. So it's an unrelated example, because this is not a hemorrhagic fever, but when we had the hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola and Lassa fever going around in Sierra Leone, um, and these were war-torn countries, you know, they had had several civil wars, and there was no infrastructure in place in order to deliver care, isolate people, and treat 
sick individuals, that is a place and time where we know that you can get diseases getting way out of hand really, really quickly. In this particular case, when a country has enough wealth and resources to, you know, sequester people if they need to, um, they can treat people as they need to, as long as it's done in a, you know, in a compassionate way, then that's the scary thing. Um, I, I think that this particular situation is going to be just fine. So here's some of the key takeaways in terms of what can you do? Well, uh, short of, you know, not going to China right now, if you are living in Southeast Asia, China, like any of those places where wet markets are a, a feature of life, if you can avoid them, do so. You don't want to be around multiple places for the virus to potentially mutate and better adapt to becoming more infectious or more severe. So avoid wet markets where they have live and dead animals as well as produce all around. Wearing those masks will provide some small degree of protection, the ones that seem to be fashion statements in China. However, <laughs> they are not like the N95 respirators because they don't form a perfect seal, but it will block a lot of those droplets from being expelled from you. So it'll help protect other people from your droplets. It'll do a little bit to protect you. Um, if you have to cough or sneeze, I always tell the sneeze or cough into your elbow or into a handkerchief, not into your hand. Wash <laughs> your hands. There's not really any antiviral medications you can take, and antibiotics won't do you any good because it's a virus. You're just, it won't have any effect. Not everybody is going to be kind of up to speed on this kind of an outbreak. So it may be important to, you know, advocate for yourself a little bit. Listen, I have recently visited this part of China, or I've been to a wet market, or as this outbreak spreads a little bit, um, you know, I've actually been to an area where this coronavirus has been propagating. And honestly, right now, we're not saying you have to freak out and search for help and you're going to die. Absolutely not. You, you do have to get tested. It's a very, very good idea to get tested. And then if, you know, you're able to kind of sequester yourself, meaning like if you can stay home and, and you can make sure that you're not exposed to a lot of people at once, then you can. You can just keep away from, you know, general populace. There are just a handful of possible interventions that we could do in terms of antivirals. I really don't want to get into it right now because they're almost all experimental. But there are steps that we can take if you start to get really sick um, and, you know, you, you start to get something like pneumonia where we can get you at least support and see you through the worst of it so that your body can clear out the virus. So if you are young, hearty, and hale, you should probably just get plenty of rest and fluids, same as you would with any cold, unless you begin to notice difficulty breathing, swallowing, or speaking. People mm -hmm. who should be more concerned should be the elderly, people who have pre-existing lung disease like COPD, asthma, things like that, 
Um, people who are immunosuppressed, if you've had, if you're on cancer medications, if you're severely uncontrolled diabetic, if you have HIV or liver disease, uh, you're considered immunosuppressed and you could be at higher risk for a more severe outcome. And as we said, the very old and the very young are always at risk with any new disease. Um, if you fall into any of those categories, you're probably better off getting evaluated sooner rather than later. But again, so far, it has not seemed to be, it has not reached the level of a pandemic yet. And the, the WHO did just vote on that. And they said it's not severe enough that this needs to be a global cause of worry. It does, however, need to be something that we closely follow and at the moment is a cause for concern. Right. Yeah, so we we are not at pandemic. Um, we're certainly not worried the way we were with MERS that a lot of people would get very, very ill in a hurry. But we're, we are to the point where we want to kind of alert you guys where you can freely speak to the CDC, local public health, your doctors, without fear of, you know, some, you know, being stuck in some quarantine. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a good spot where if we follow the course of this outbreak um, in various cities around the world, especially in Southeast Asia, that we should be able to get a handle on it. The full course is about four to 10 days as with any mm -hmm. other cold. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh, especially this week. Thanks, infectious disease <laughs> doctor and researcher. Yeah, <laughs> I was so happy to be of help. And um, I, I want to give a special shout out to Dr. James D. Cherry, who uh, was one of my mentors at UCLA while I was coming up in fellowship. He really impressed on us, uh, you know, why it was important to study medical history and to understand where we got the knowledge that we currently have. And one of the things that he really told us about when he was describing upper respiratory tract infections was this common cold unit in Salisbury Steak. in England. <laughs> Stick. Stop it. So I, <laughs> I, I really want to give out a shout out to him. He, he taught me about John Enders, um, who had come up with this method of viral culture and who got the Nobel Prize for it. And so... I, I really want to thank him and all mentors that we have who work so hard to make sure that we don't just get like tidbits of knowledge in medical school, that we really understand where our knowledge comes from and why we should kind of honor the history of that and not just, you know, absorb a I bunch of buzzwords. I can't wait to become that 80-year-old physician who's like, did you know... <laughs> because I'm already there. I'm just not 80 yet. Yeah, yeah. You just have to actually I just need, be 80. I need that veneer of respectability to go with my age. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with a bunch of links for the sources we used researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time... As always, 
Happy travels. Bye, everybody. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.